folks at Penwood's Equine are excited for you to hear about their new foot quality product, Essential Rescue. When you've exhausted all other biotin or foot quality products, this will be your go-to because it gets results in an incredibly short amount of time. Maybe you have multiple horses and everything you're doing seems to be working for them, except that one horse. No matter what you try, nothing seems to help that horse. We've all been there. Well, Essential Rescue is a product that you can add to whatever you're already feeding to achieve great hoof quality results. Through our own research and reports from our customers with their own horses, Essential Rescue can help deliver significant improvements in just one shoeing cycle. And for a limited time, Penwoods is offering free shipping on Essential Rescue when you buy from Penwoods.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. For this episode, we'll do something a little different. We're featuring a recording from the 2020 International Hoof Care Summit. It was more of a chat with Jim Ferry and Craig Trenka, two members of the International Horseshoeing Hall of Fame. In this session, both farriers discuss their careers. They've known each other for many years, dating back to their time as competitors, and have had distinctly different career paths. But I think listening to them can give good insight on balancing a career, measuring the success of your farrier practice, and how to have longevity in a very tough profession. Do you think maybe the the best place to start, these guys have uh, uh, incredible reputations in this industry, as I said, Hall of Famers. Tell the crowd a little bit about yourself. Let's start with you, Craig. I'm 54 and I've shot horses since I graduated high school. I thought it was gonna be probably the easiest thing I ever did. You know, I never thought I'd see another poor day in my life. I started shoeing and I knew everything. And then before you know it, you hope you know a little bit before you're dead. And it's like, I just like shoeing. A lot of of my friends have graduated out of it, done different things. They've, They've said, been there, done that, but I still enjoy doing it a lot. I have two boys. Both of them are really good at what they do. My one son took up shoeing and it's, I was telling Jim, it's a huge relief that he enjoys it and has a passion for it. And uh, my other son's a really good, Levi is a good saxophonist. And I have probably the most important component as anybody would know is I have a wife that is very, 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 very understanding. And so it lets me do a lot of this stuff and it encourages me and is, it's, uh, I, I have a, I had my aunt come to the house, our compound we call it, where we have everything there. And she's like, she says, the one thing that I think is neat about you guys' life is that you have everything going in the same direction. You guys get to be around each other. My wife has a shop out front. I have a shop out back. We've always tried to make it to where we go in the same direction. And our life is horseshoeing and it's really not much more than horseshoeing. It's kind of, it, it envelops our life, but it's not like I feel overwhelmed or I feel like it's pressure or stress. And I, I always get mad at people on Facebook when they're like stressed out, feeling bad, LOL. And it's sort of like, I, I've been doing it for over like 36, 37 years and I still enjoy it to this day as much as when I first started. Hi, um, my journey started when I was 14. There was no horses in the, in the 70s. And my dad had a job as selling dairy chemicals and, uh, one day he came back and he says, pull that forge out of the garage and light it. And I, I'd never seen a forge lit in my life. 
Alan, my brother, was 11, and we pulled this forge out of the garage and we lit it. And he'd been promised the, the chemical sales from this farmer if he put show shoes on his Clydesdale foal. And uh, so I watched my dad make these shoes. I was 14, and uh, I'd never seen anything like it. I was six when my granddad, but I, I don't remember any work ha happening, but 14, I watched them, and, and I thought, I want to do that. So then somebody else heard he was a, a farrier, and an old farrier had died, and before there was enough work for him to start shoeing again part-time in the 70, this would be, you know, 69. And uh, so he started shoeing part-time, and before we knew where we were, I, I'd left school at 16 and started work full-time, and I'd make shoes all day and then come home. He'd come home at, from his normal job and would start nailing them on. So then Alan left school. By that time, I was nearly 19, 20, and the two of us just, we would go shoeing together. We still shoe together to this day, 50 years later. We, my dad always did shoeing competitions when he was an apprentice, and so he went back into shoeing competitions with uh, guys you'll have heard of, Edward Martin and David Wilson and a uh, guy, Jock McKenzie and Jackie Duffy and Ian Wade. And these are all my father's generation, and they were all at the top of the tree. Like Ian Wilson, Ian Wilson, Dave Wilson had won the Highland Show 11 years in a row. Nobody could beat him. And... Uh, I just wanted to be that man, and uh, David took me under his wing, and I learned oh, my forging. I learned from David, and, and my theoretical knowledge came from a guy called Jock Scott, FWCF. He lived about 10 miles from David, so I spent my weekends between the two of them, just sucking information from them. And, uh, and then a qualified registration came in in 75 and, and in England and 77 in Scotland, and they, my mentors and heroes, started taking their exams. They never had a qualification between them at that point, none of them. And uh, so they started taking their exams and uh, I thought, I want my exams. So in 77, I, I would, I, I'd been shooting horses obviously for eight, eight or nine years at this point. I took my RSS a diploma at the time, which is the equivalent of your CJF and uh, passed that. And then I wanted more and I took my associate in AA 79 and then I did my fellowship in 82 and that, the is fellowship. The, is the fellowship as high as you can get? It, it used to be. There's now a PhD in Farriery in Britain. You can do a doctorate if you want. But I'm not clever enough for that. So I did, I did the, the fellowship. And then about two months later, I got a letter inviting me to be an examiner and a judge for the Worshipful Company of Farriers. And that was in... You have to be a fellow to be an examiner for the Worshipful Company of Farriers? You don't have to be. You, have to, you can be an associate and be an examiner as long as your fellowship's in the pipeline. Right. So if you're an exam, you then became an examiner, and I did a probationary under uh, Eric Plant and Edgar Stern, and, and I started examining in 1985, and uh, I'm now the most senior examiner because everybody else is falling off the perch, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't mean I'm any better than anybody else; it just means I've been doing it longer, and that's that's what happens when you get to 64 and you're still shooting horses. Um, but I still enjoy it. Most of my work now is... 64. 64, yeah. yes. When I'm 64. <laughs> There's a song in there, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about your practice today. You know, what kind of horses are you guys doing? What, what's your workload like? We were talking about that just before we came up. And like, I think, I feel like I'm in the sweet spot to where I, I, I shoe horses. I'm old enough to do no harm. People trust me. 
I just shoot for people that have nice horses that are easy to get along with. I don't have to make the grade. And when I say that, everybody's got that mortar that goes between the bricks that, ah, they got that one mare that's rank and this. And it's like, I, we don't, I don't do it. And it's, so it's, it's like the funnest time in my life is shoeing horses right now. Would you? Yeah, well, I had a business, a big business, well, I'll maybe discuss later, but it ended up that the tail was wagging the dog. I was employing, my brother and I were employing another six farriers plus apprentices shoeing sometimes as many as 70, 75 horses a day plus the travel. And uh, I You was, guys had like 1,700 horses in a two, suite? Two, two and a half thousand we had. Two and a half thousand. Yeah, yeah, and we, we ran them for, yeah, 30 years and... Uh, when I visited you guys, you guys would shoe more horses because for people to get on your books, they had to bring them to the smithy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. They would shoe more horses in the smithy so people could get on their books than most people shoeing a whole day. Yeah. Like we would do nine and then they're like, well, we're going to go to work. I was like, well, I'm spent. Yeah, yeah, that's what used to happen, yeah. And they'd be queuing up. But anyway, so what we did was we, we trained and, and in order to, what happened most of the places was the farrier would train an apprentice and then the apprentice would go somewhere, wherever home was. And we trained nine from Ireland. Eight of them stayed within 10 miles. We trained England, they still stayed. So within like 30 miles of our forge are 20 apprentices, 20 farriers that we trained. So I'm still trying to run a business as big with all these horses and compete with guys that are as good as me, if not better. You know, you, you probably heard the Robinson, Paul Robinson, Davey Verini, they're world, both world champions. They set up and forged three miles away from our forge. And they were in best of friends, but in direct competition to us. And uh, so we had to keep our game. Every horse was responsible for Al, from Alan and I. It was as if we'd shot it ourselves. So we had to keep our game up at the top level and still shoe all these horses. But it got to, from my, from my point of view, uh, it got that the tail was wagging the dog out. To keep the high quality work, I was having to pay big wages, huge wages, for to keep these guys sweet. And uh, it got in the end, I, I, I just, Bal and I were responsible for two and a half thousand horses, multiply the nails that are getting in these feet over a six week period, that we weren't putting them all in, but we were responsible for them. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it usually happens at Christmas time, because the guys go home to their families and, how many are you shooing a day? Oh, I'm doing six or seven. And how much is it a set? Oh, it's whatever it was. Multiply that. Do you know you could be making X amount per week? You should go on your own, and you could set your watch by first day back at New Year, in would come the first one and they'd go, I'm gonna go on my own gym. So that's one away. Next, next one would come. So the next one came in and Alan, Facebook had just arrived. This is about seven years ago. And Alan said, I see you're going on holiday in, in August. And he says, yeah, what about it? He says, well, is it not, should you not ask your employer before you go on holiday and book a holiday? Okay, it's in August. You, well, Jim and I go fishing that week in August that you've booked this holiday. And he, he went out the door and I said to Alan, I says, I've had enough. He says, so have I. So the choice was, we just we could either make them what you call redundant, and I don't know whether that's what you call it over here. You, you pay them severance pay, or else we gave them their horses. So we gave seven, seven of them, an apprentice stayed for six months, gave seven of them 300 horses each, and set them loose. And we kept, Alan and I kept some. And, uh, and that was seven years ago, and I can honestly say I've not been happier.
can honestly say I've not been happy. What about your practice, Craig? I got a little van. A lot of my life has been modeled after my experiences going to England and the efficiency. It's like a lot of people talk about how much money they charge. And like Jim Keith set me up since I live in the land of Mignana, like land of the flea, home of the plague, New Mexico. There's not really, it's pretty much starvation with a view. So you have to really be frugal on the expense side. So I've got a little transit van. Uh, I make my shoes. I make all my shoes, and, I, and, and not because of anything more than I, I enjoy it. I love the whole concept of shoeing horses. I love making the shoes. I make them in my shop. So when I go out during the day, I'm basically resetting everything because the shoes are already fit up. I already know on Tuesday I've got a gelding that's got 14 inches, a 3 eighths by one. I already know what the offset is. And I, uh, I pretty much... Everything is a reset, whether it's new or not, because I'm just fitting up sets and I come home a little, I do maybe five or six is a good day for me. Like, and then when you make a trip, obviously you have to compartmentalize your life and then you doing 10 and 12 horses to make up and it's too many. But I, I try to, like we, we run the WCB, so I sweep up nails. <laughs> People waste a lot of stuff and I'm sorry, but I like, I put threes in the three boxes and fours in the four boxes, and I use them. And it's like, so I, I'm a cheapskate. I shoe horses, but I, I enjoy it. None of my customers really know that I put on handmade shoes. It's not a big deal. And I like not having, I like Jim works in vet uh, colleges and stuff like that. I, I think probably the, I always fret messing with a veterinarian because when you mess with a veterinarian, that means your day is going to slow down and it's going to take forever. So I like shoeing sound horses and uh, keeping them sound. It seems like that's where all the money's at, but maybe not. How did you two meet? I remember the first time I saw you. You probably don't remember the first time you saw me, but I saw this guy giving a clinic in Daytona Beach in 1992. And uh, Alan and I had waited till the AFA convention went somewhere warm before we decided to go. And uh, so we practiced for the AFA convention in 1992. And, and I was walking up and you were doing a demo and uh, somebody says, you, you need to watch that kid. He is, uh, what age would you be in 1992? That was the year Bodie was born. That was, but what, how old was I? Yeah, anyway. You watch that kid. He, he, you'd won the heart bar something the yeah. year before. Yeah, oh yeah. He says he won the heart bar the year before. You need to watch him. And we watched you work, and, and we competed, Alan and I, and we, we won the two-man draft then, and we got a lovely statue from John Claudin of Anvil Brand at the time. And we virtually prized it out of his hands because an American hadn't won it. And it was a beautiful trophy that he had commissioned. It was, a, it was barbed wire in the shape of a draft shoe. And uh, we, uh, Alan and I won the two-man draft that year, and, and, uh, and that was the first time I met you. It was pretty much common knowledge that when the, the Ferry Brothers got into anything with the draft shoes, anything, it was just everybody then was going for second place. It was like, and probably the best run I've ever seen in my life, the best orchestrated <laughs> run I've ever seen was in Calgary, you had to make four draft shoes in an hour. And they were plain stamp fronts, and they were fullered, cocked heels behind, and I'd never seen this technique in my life, but Jim was running the fire and he stacked the shoes. 
Instead of running two shoes, they ran four brand, they ran four shoes and they stacked them in the fire. And I'd never seen that in my life. And I was totally enthralled. It was like, and by the time it got to the bottom of the pile, he'd pull it out, it'd be red hot. And they never talked, they just worked. And they just knew exactly what they were gonna do. And, and he thought I was ribbing him, but the plain stamps were a weird configuration and there was five holes on the lateral side. So I see that they put four holes and I'm going like, and I didn't want to get disqualified, but I'm like, I'm looking at him and he's like, and he thinks I'm just like trying to distract him or something. <laughs> I kept on going like, boring. And they made the most beautiful shoes. And I think, I think that Marshall kept them and everything and you guys got dequal. And that was like the best go I'd ever seen anybody have. It was just immaculate, but the wrong amount of nail holes. But I was like, I was impressed. It was, it was, it was out of this world. And, and Jim and Alan were, they traveled a bunch so you could understand they're Scottish. So that was, uh, you already gravitated because I could understand what he said. Because like uh, when you go to Scotland, the people who don't travel, they might as well be talking Martian because you can't understand a word. That, do you agree? Yeah. Like, and even now it's like, Jim, use your phone voice because it's like you have to pretend like, because did anybody get lost while he was talking here a little bit? Yeah, it's like. I'm sorry. No. So they travel a lot. So we would go back and, and they have, Jim and Alan, they have, they, they, they just had the business. They had a business. They had a waiting room. They had a waiting room in their Smithy with coffee machine. <laughs> they had magazines and they had like elevator music in it and everything. <laughs> no, like, we never. <laughs> no, we never. We draw the line at that. <laughs> it was, and they let us come in there and just turn it upside down. That was the first butt chewing I got from out uh, from Jim was that we burned up all their half by one. Like we went and we burned like I'll bet you six sticks of his half mm. by one, and then, and we're getting ready to go to Closeburn, yeah. and he's like, it would have been nice. Well, I I was like, yeah, I'll have to remember that. It was like, they were, but where do you do six sticks of steel? Like, I know. <laughs> It was, uh, I came home from shoeing and him and Jim Poor were practicing and they practiced all day, all day. And then, right, let's go for it. So they'd made a hind draft shoe in 11 minutes, start to finish. Him and, and that's, that's a fact. <laughs> you and Jim Poor made a hind draft shoe. In those days, there was a competition that used to have uh, Stonely was the, the big international. That was, you, you maybe heard of it, I don't know, but it was Scotland, England, Ireland, Wales, the army, and New Zealand and Australia would come in, and sometimes Italy, France, and latterly Norway and other countries have come in, but generally the top five were between England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, the army, and America, and it was just, it was just that these guys individually could beat any one of us but something seemed to melt down when they went as a team. And I have no clue what it is, because every single one of them could beat every single one of us easily when we come over here. That's true, isn't it? I think, well, I think. Yeah, and that's what we, we knew that, but somehow, and, and, but you guys worked brilliant as, as pairs, and, and I don't know what seemed to happen but England seemed to always win, or Wales used to always win. And then there was England, and sometimes Scotland would get in and get second. But they never, the best you got was, I think you got second one year. Yeah. 
That, and that was... What, uh, the American team yeah. that thing? Yeah, well, you yeah. guys had two English teams in there. Is that what happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with me. Scotland's won it a bunch, right? Yeah, they have done now, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were... The, one of the proudest moments of my... I tried for... I was in the team in 1983, and I worked right through to 1995 before I won it, the international. It was second, 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 and then me, Alan... Jim Balfour and Derek Gardner. That was the, f but when it started in Ireland in 1978-79. That's the picture of with Jay Sharp and all Jay that. Jay Sharp and, and all that, yeah. Randy Lucart and Bruce yeah. Daniels over there. And that's, uh, I first came over here to help uh, Bob Pethick and a friend of mine had moved to New York and I knew, I'd seen Bob somewhere in team I think and I asked him if I could go and work with him in 1984 uh, when I went to visit and uh, he kindly let me go and work with him and he opened my eyes to how to shoe quality horses properly and uh, I'll never forget that. What were some of those points you picked up from him? What, what was different about his work? Um, take a pride, he takes a, he took, in those, I took a pride in my work but he takes a pride in balance and aesthetics and it's hard to combine the two to get proper balance on a horse and have it look right. And he's been doing that his whole life, his whole shoeing life. And uh, I, learned his, I learned a lot from him in, he, in his work ethic. And I, I actually went and worked with him again in 1990, no, 2000. Uh, winter of 2000, I managed to go and work with him again. And he's a, he's a good friend. and. and uh, I haven't seen him lately. I was on the team with Bob. He's a, he, like he's OCD over the top. Yeah. Yes. Like I used one of his Q-tips when I roomed with him. <laughs> and he's like, Craig, I brought exact amount of Q-tips for every day I was going to be gone. <laughs> so then he, it created a dilemma. He's like, I'm missing a Q-tip. Like, <laughs> he is, though. Yeah. He didn't. He? He's yeah. like, everything is like... If something bothers yeah. him on a foot, he's not gonna. Yeah. You're gonna. It's gonna get fixed, and it's yeah. not. He's not gonna go on. He's he's the most mm -hmm. meticulous person I've ever met. Yep. So uh, you know, Jim's talked about uh, obviously just now Bob and and Edward Martin and and Dave Wilson. Who are some of the farriers that had huge impacts on you and, and changed your perspective dramatically about shoeing? I would say that, like, I was looking at Grant Moon. I went to a Grant Moon clinic. I, I'd done like most people do in their careers. You go out and you kind of get lost in yourself and you shoe horses by yourself. And then all of a sudden you get back in this giant network super highway. And Grant, Grant was like, really showed me what hard work was and helped me get a work ethic. And then then it's just, it just goes from there. And then you're like, you meet the fairies and you see them. And, but probably the most influential person that I probably was around the least that really made an impact on my life would be Edward Martin. I, I think that, like they had a, a deal for him at the, at the Tulsa convention. And I didn't feel like I was, should speak there because I didn't feel like I knew him as well as most of the people in the room. But he, uh, Edward, Edward was a, uh, he was a great man and he gave me my perspective on this industry is, is like a lot of people talk about leaders in the industry and I don't, I don't think I'm a leader in the industry, I think I'm a custodian. 
of the industry. And he always made it seem like he was a custodian. He was like always pushing people. He was always, he was the oldest man in the room and he would be pushing a broom. He would be moving horses. He was, he was a great ambassador and he taught you how to act like a grown-up, you know, and he would school on you if you didn't act like a grown-up. And, uh, you know, it was fun to see him school on Grant Moon, you know, stuff like that. He, like, scold Grant. It, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, he's, <laughs> like, you got this little banty rooster talking to Grant, and he's pointing, wagging his finger at him. And <laughs> one time I seen a piece of bar stock come off of the, a rack in his shop, and it hit him, but it surprised him, and everybody saw it hit him. And, and Edward didn't do anything but turn around and, he was in the boxing stance. Like he thought someone smacking him. He's like, give you what for? He's a, he's a, he's the daddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think an important point that you both have discussed is getting your, your practice, getting your career to where you want it to be. Uh, what do you think was the, the best change you made to get your practice to where you want it to be, to, to really enjoy these years now of shoeing? To easy enjoy? To, to enjoy what you're doing right now. <laughs> I th I, uh, personally, I think I reached a time in my life where I didn't want the stress of just doing the numbers. So uh, I'm now at a good point in my life with a shoe. I've been consultant at Glasgow Vet School since 1974, and I still go there. I've just started Edinburgh Vet School two years ago. I go there. And I do another five vet practices. So I would say probably, I've got another probably 100 clients, but the rest, most of my work is, is just fixing cripples. I enjoy it, and I enjoy it. I, don't, I, don't, I gave up the pressure yards, the high-end show jumpers, the high-end eventers, because you, I could get a phone call at 7 o'clock on a Friday night, and something would be going to an event, they paid all their entry money or whatever, and you need to get that client service. And when I, I never had the staff anymore. It was impossible for me to do it without doing 200 miles. So uh, I just I, I quit that lot. So now the clients, I show them three times, four times, and then I liaise with the farrier that was doing them and tell them what I've done, and very often he doesn't do it. <laughs> does what he did to, that made it lame in the first place. So, but, and he thinks I'm, um, so, and he thinks that I had, I had one six months ago, and you'll see from my lectures, and some of you have heard me speak before, and for the last 26 years, I've been telling, not everybody here, but drop the outside, lower the outside, lower the outside. So this ex-apprentice of mine, not ex-apprentice, he was qualified, but ex-worker of mine, and, uh, his horse was lame, came 100 miles to the vet school. He knew I was going to see it, so he dropped it outside, gave it a lateral extension, and sent it up. He did it two days before I was going to shoot it. And it was lame when he did it, and it was still lame after he did it. And it comes in, and the thing needed lowered on the inside. So I videoed it, sent him the video, lowered the inside, got it landing flat, went home sound. And so the point I'm making is that I can teach, and I've trained farriers 30-odd, and they still think that I'm a crackpot because I don't, I don't trim and I don't conform to conventional trimming. I think it's fine to know how to do conventional trimming and shoeing, but um, most of the way I work, uh, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. So, and I'll try and 
I've got a couple of lectures and hopefully I'll, I'll show you how I do it and then you won't agree with me, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. Yeah, I, 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 I enjoy shoeing horses now more than ever. I, I've learned to say no. I walk away from horses that are bad and people say, well, you can't walk away from horses that are this or that. But like la last night we were talking and you have to have this one point to where you say that's enough. And if you leverage yourself and you have two new trucks and you have a bunch of apprentices and this and that, then that point gets moved way over of that's enough. And it's sort of like, and I can't repeat what that, that term is, but it's like, it's this point where you just say, no, I'm not gonna do it. So like if your truck is paid off and your house is paid off and you got your bills under control, then that horse that's kind of swatting its tail and clocking you a little bit, it's easy to say, I don't want to do it. But if you've leveraged yourself to where you're like, well, my girlfriend likes to, to wear nice clothes and have a nice purse and this and that, well, then that horse that's got that tail ringing and its foot up, you got to climb under it. You got to do it. You just, you just because I've seen me do it. But if, you, if you're not leveraged, and that's the funnest thing. It's sort of like if my truck is kind of on the van is you can feel that transmission slipping. Well, then that means I have to go back into be nice mode where you're like, <laughs> no, I got to go out there and actually like I have a payment. And then once you have a payment, then you got to go and you got to trudge them out. But you can teach your horse owners to be broke if yeah. they're. If, they're, if you don't have that leverage over you. And it's weird to a lot of horse owners when you're like, man, that one's pretty waspy. It's not getting done today. And you're like, they're like, what do you mean it's not getting done? And I was like, it's not getting done by me. It's like, it's just not getting done. Or if people, and then when you tell people, you just say like, hey, I'd like to get paid. And they're like, well, what? ain't I good for it? And I'm like, well, I, man, I've been doing it a long time. I don't really need, I really don't need to do this for practice or glory. We're doing it for the raw material of money. And so it's like, so once you set it up and you have no leverage and you, and you get in the sweet spot, like I say, like we have, well, my youngest son is almost out of college, but when you, when you have your kids are set up and then a lot, like I don't know if anybody knows this, but kids are expensive. <laughs> and so when they're gone, you almost feel guilty because you ain't buying four boxes of cereal and stuff like that. It's like, <laughs> then you can shoe what you want to shoe, can't you? <laughs> But there's such a thing as chemical restraint. And uh, I, if I don't do cranky horses, and I never have, you know, I, do, I never wanted the reputation. I've got a good reputation for doing trimming Shetlands. I'm good at that because I, I think about Shetlands and I go down on my knees and I pick their little feet up to where they're comfortable. And I bought a thing at a convention here. I don't know, must have been in the 90s, called a W brand spring. I'll never forget it. And it's a little... I don't, are they still there? I hope they are because I'll buy another one. But they just lock in your nippers and you just go like that around the foot. And the foot's there. It's like that. And I'm, I'm on my knees in the little Shetlands and they love me. Whereas I used to send the guys in and they would get thighs like this from weightlifting, try and pick this little Shetland up thinking they were stronger and it's through the roof and doing everything. And so... If I've got a reputation for anything at home, it's trimming Shetlands. Get Jim, he's really good at trimming Shetlands. And I don't mind them. And they nuzzle me and I feed them biscuits and it's, it's good. <laughs> it's good. It's the owners that are like, but at the vet schools, it, I'm very privileged that the horses are in a strange environment. 
do you want this dope gym? Yeah, go for it. Because I can do my best work if I've just got to. Once I've seen it walk, and uh, I've videoed it, and and uh, so and I'm not here to give a sales pitch for but I, I, a colleague of mine called Martin Deacon, who's he's just retired. He was the farrier for the British Olympic team for years, and he's taught me loads over my career. He was a fellow examiner, and he's just retired, quit. So him and I go fishing together now. He says, have you tried this video app called Coach's Eye? If you download that app, it's free. If you want to pay 100 bucks a year, you can get 1,000 mega giga things stored up in the cloud. And uh, when you get that, you can actually slow down the footfall with a little wheel and see what you think is right. You develop your own eye. To, I, 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 when I'm looking at things, I look at footfall. Footfall, for me, is virtually everything. I'll explain, hopefully, that in some of the lectures. The, the, the foot is the end of the pendulum, the leg's the pendulum, the foot's the end. So if the foot isn't landing flat, then the stresses going up and strains going up the leg are, are wrong. So if I can use this little video up, it takes no time, just walk that. You only need to three, see three strides, boom, and you slow it right down, and you can actually slow the foot to see how every foot hits the ground, and you can trim it accordingly. And then you can walk the horse up again and then trim it accordingly. And uh, it's been a game changer for me. I've had this now for about, it'll become 10, 11 years. And uh, you can download it, you can share it with your friends, you can share it with your vets. If there's a vets in amongst us and they're, they're vetting horses, coach's eye. So you video the horse at the time when you're vetting the horse for, for purchase. And if it's sound and it's, everything's there, you've got this record of it. And then you can just store that, send it to the file, and you've got that record because there's nothing worse than you're betting a horse at a dealer's and the dealer's chemically helped the horse a bit and uh, the horse is nice and sound and you video it and it's nice and sound but when the owner gets it three days later, it's lame. You can say, well, there it's there. Totally sound when I saw it. So it's a really good thing to have a record. There are, I'm sure there are other apps available, but this, this worked for me. So. Yeah. What, uh, when you're prior to prioritizing what you're looking at a, with a horse, Craig, what, what do you look at first? I, I, like, I, I think that you definitely want to watch them walk up, I think. But I, I always just, I think that you follow distortion and you're trying to build a, a healthy hoof capsule. And, and like I say, like what Jim is talking about, like you can't be too high on the inside and stuff like that. And you, then people take that out of context and then someone makes it too high on the inside. But it's like, it's like when older farriers tell you things to shortcut your career and then it's almost like you can't take that advice. It's like there's some rule in the back of your head. It's, it's like I can't take that advice. But it's like Jim Keith and older farriers, not that Jim, Jim Ferry's only <laughs> 10 years older than me, but he, when they tell you high on the inside and it's like, if you're gonna fail, if everybody in here is divided, the room's divided, that side thinks it's high on the outside, that side thinks it's high on the inside, I think that high on the inside for a quadruped is way better on the front foot. I just can't think it could be. And so when I look at feet, I do a lot of old geriatric horses and you can make them just almost, almost like pulling a thorn out of them. When you trim that outside leverage off of there, they just relax and you can feel them drop and it's like, it's like, I, I think that as a rule of thumb, I would rather fail being high on the inside than being high on the outside any day of my life. So when I look at feet, I start 
evaluating like, are, are these man-made problems? Trim feet are always easy because the horse is pretty much trimming feet. Unless they're neglected from bad animal husbandry, a horse that's got a six-week trim on it is telling you everything you need to know. We have a lot of students here, apprentices, farriers with three years or fewer. And of course, there's a round table tonight if you're new to the industry and a uh, good discussion with Tiffany Gardner and Bob Smith from the Pacific Coast Horseshoeing School. But I think it's important for them to hear that just no. At some point you have to say no. However, you're at that stage of starting your career. What advice do you have for them to, to be able to grow that business to, to uh, accelerate in their career, but still balance that to not get in dangerous situations or, or to not feel like they have to do that work? Um, over here is, is a totally different concept from where we are. If, I, I, you won't, probably won't believe me, but if I told you that if someone worked for me, and it didn't matter how good they were, they would be going into the third year of shoeing before they ever put a nail in a foot. Two full years they'd be working with me before they would put a nail in a foot. And when they start putting nails in feet, I would nail the shoe on with two nails and get them to join the dots. So the way I trained them was I wouldn't let them trim a horse until they could trim me 10 out of 10 that I never had to alter then I could let them trim on their own. I wouldn't let them fit a shoe until they could fit me 10 out of 10 that I never had to alter. I wouldn't let, sorry, nail a shoe. So all our stuff is hot fitted. And those of you who have worked, been with me, you'll have seen how I work. Um, so we, we used to work in twos or threes. And one guy would be pulling and clenching. That's all he did. And then he would gradually go into trimming and rough cutting. And the other guy would be doing the good trimming final trim and the fit. And I would come along and do be fitting and nailing at the same time. And uh, it worked, that system worked for me. And I never, like Craig says, he hand makes every shoes. I used to get apprentices when I started, I used to train them and they would hand make shoes. They'd stay in the forge for a day. And then I'd have the job of trying to put these handmade shoes on feet and I would tear my hair out. So what I did was I trained them to make one shoe properly. So they'd make one three-quarter full of shoe, perfect. One three-quarter full of hind shoe, perfect. A bar shoe, perfect. So every shoe they made, they would go in at the forge at night, and it could take them three hours, but they'd know how to make a perfect shoe. And then if they wanted to do a shoeing competition, they had to speed up. But instead of making 20 sets of shoes, and maybe I could put three shoes on and waste and steal, that worked for me. Because we never actually handmade, I, I don't know, I haven't put a handmade shoe on for years. You know, there's so many good shoes out there. And you'll see from my lectures tomorrow, I'm not going to show you beautifully nailed feet with beautiful clenches and, and, and everything. I'm going to show you my everyday work, which is hopefully keeping horses balanced and sound, instead of showing you nice straight lines and... and uh, that sort of stuff, and that's how we work. And obviously, there's, there's a lot of polish. And we, we, Bob Pethick, we're talking about Bob. He showed me how to use a grinder. Now, the, I would never have dreamt. We, our apprentices had vices, hand vices, and everything, <laughs> everything was rasp boxed. And it was only 20 years ago that I put grinders in the trucks. But Bob, back in the day, we're talking 84, Bob had a grinder in his truck, 
and, and I just couldn't see a way it was dangerous because I didn't want my guys having leading electric cables and then horses walking over these electric cables and, and stuff. So we, we then got inverters in the trucks and, and, and uh, used, <laughs> used grinders. But anyway, so that's how I trained them. And, and by the end of four years, the British farrier has done four years of training and then they, get, they pass their, or set their exam. But um, don't think for one minute that everybody that does four years in the UK is good or brilliant or better than you guys because they're not. The, the system still can break down and fail and a lot of it's individual. Just like you get good plumbers, you get good joiners, you get good farriers that are passionate about their work. And we're no different from, from any other profession. I would say if I had advice to give young people is you can't trim your way out of a problem. I think that we spend a lot of the time, most of the stuff that I get that's lame or crippled that I don't work on is out of foot. And it's sort of like you only get to make one mistake every six weeks and you can't like, oh, I'm going to retrim that. It's like you're done. And it's like my son, uh, and I, I'm going to kind of convict him here, but it was like he'd worked with me just like it was, I, I, I modeled a lot. I'd never taken a person from start to finish. So Bodie was the first person he, he's going to make the commitment to shoe horses. So he, he would, and we did the same thing. As soon as he got done good at pulling shoes and he was proficient at pulling shoes, maybe he would trim the left side of a frog and get good at that. And then he'd trim the right side of the frog and do that. And then uh, but it was forever before he ever like nailed a shoe on or trimmed a foot. It was like, it was a slow observation process. And then one day we got on a, a quarter horse that had a, a little bit of a drop sole in him and, and he got into the sole and it bled a little bit. And so it was like, that was the first time it happened for him. So he felt like a criminal, you know, I, oh God. I was like trying to pick it up and put it back on the foot, you know, and all that stuff. And you're <laughs> like, it, it happens. It happens to everybody. There's not a person in this room that has, you haven't made a mistake. But the thing was, is, is can you imagine what the next two weeks look like of his hoof preps? I mean, he didn't trim anything. It was like, it, was like, it looks good. It looks good. And, that, and that's the thing is it's like, it's like you have to. One of the questions he asked me is like, how do we know if we left too much foot? And it's like, well, next time we come back, it'll be there. It's like leaving dead foot. And, and I'm not talking about laminitis or this or that. I'm talking about just everyday shoeing. Horses are way happier with dead foot than they are trimmed down to a pulsating potato. You know what I mean? It's, it's like you can't trim your way out of a problem. And, and, and it just seemed like life got so good for me whenever I quit trying to do that. Mm -hmm. When you just kind of like, you're protecting feet. You're not, you're not, you don't want to go in there and pretend like you are going to take this much off of an 1,100 pound beast that's going in somebody's arena that they think has got this much manure, but that's bedding. You know what I mean? It's, it's not going to make that much of a difference. Dead foot's good foot. We're almost out of time. I think this has really flown by. But I, I got one question for you both to, to close us out, and that's looking back throughout your career, what are, what are you most proud of? I would say, I, like, to be honest with you, uh, a couple weeks ago, Bodie and I did a three-man draft, and we did good. And he was in charge, and we we did good. And he, and you could see he was barking orders at me, and he's like he likes it, and he likes it more than me. And it's fun to have someone. I, I I'm proud that that like 
I, young people still like to be around me enough to where I can interact with them. I like, I like, I like America's youth. I like the horseshoeing youth. And because I, I think I was, a, he saw me at my, like when I was really like a competitor jerk. You know what I mean? And, the, and people like Jim shaped me and helped me grow up and become a, a responsible adult to a certain degree. And so it's like, it's cool. I, I, I like, you, sometimes you just gotta say you're young and you're screwed up. And so it's like, it's fun to be around the youth of the horseshoeing world. I like that, I'm proud of that. Yeah, well, my very proudest moment is uh, when I passed my associate exam, the middle exam, and I went home to my gran, who was still alive at the time, and I says, I've passed my associate gran. And she, says, she burst into tears. She says, You're, my granddad, my granddad had the same qualification. He never got the fellowship. And she never lived to see me get my fellowship, but she was so proud of me that, that day when I told her I'd passed my associate. So that would be my proudest moment, the day I went and told my grand that I'd qualified to the same as How many dad. generations are you? How many? My granddad was the first. All right. Yeah, and then my dad and, and Alan and I. But that was, I trained two guys that ended up world champions and, and I'm proud of them. But the proudest personal moment would be when I went home and, and told my grand I'd passed my associate. It's cool. If you would like to read a transcript from this session, we have it on the podcast page at AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. In our next episode, we'll feature the Hall of Fame Farrier, Terry Stever. Until then, thanks for listening.